And I was a liberal Republican. And uh, what I failed to predict was what was going to happen over the next 15 years with Ronald Reagan and Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers and having the party come to its current state of default, in my estimation, as being a responsible political player of any kind. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. When Bernie Sanders decided to go from the mayor's office in Burlington to a national stage, one obstacle stood in his way. He had to defeat Vermont's sitting Republican congressman, Representative Peter Smith. In 1988, Sanders first ran for Congress against Smith and lost in a three-way race. Two years later, Congressman Smith was completing his first term when Sanders challenged him again. This time, the maverick socialist mayor won handily. Peter Smith holds the distinction as the one-term Republican congressman whose loss launched Sanders' three-decade-long national political career. Smith is also Vermont's last Republican congressman. Peter Smith founded and led the Community College of Vermont in the 1970s and went on to serve as a state senator and lieutenant governor. After losing to Bernie Sanders in 1990, Smith left politics and Vermont to pursue a career in education. He was the first president of California State University Monterey Bay and has held senior positions at George Washington University, University of Maryland, and UNESCO. Peter Smith has a new book, Stories from the Educational Underground, The New Frontier for Learning and Work. In the book, he profiles people who did not attend college but who bring deep experiential knowledge to their work, a different kind of brilliance and talent that is too often undervalued. Peter Smith spoke to me from his home in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Peter Smith, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Uh, David, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You begin your new book by acknowledging your privilege, uh, and specifically white privilege. Talk a little bit about what you believe has privileged you and, and why that's the starting point for you telling stories of education. Well, as I was writing the book, I mean, this, this is an incredibly important part of the learning journey that uh, developing this book uh, was for me because it was during the pandemic. We were, you know, the world had slowed down. We were beginning to see uh, the inequities uh, that were always there, but see them in a different light in many ways. And my whole point with the book was to get beyond the data and tell real stories about what it's like when by circumstance of birth, you are not a born to opportunity. Um, and I wanted to have the stories uh, do the talking. And I had finished the interviews um, and I one day just had a moment and I said, almost what right do I as a, a privileged uh, white man in what I think is unfortunately still a racist uh, society, um, uh, what here I am sort of preaching through these stories from my own uh, position of privilege. And I just, uh, I thought, I, I'm not sure I can do this. And I went and spoke with my wife about it and told her the problem. And she thought about it for a second. And she said, uh, uh, why don't you interview yourself uh, and use that as a, as a counterpoint to the stories that make up the bulk of the book. So what is it like when the road to opportunity is paved from day one and then so that there is a reality uh, check at the beginning that then is uh, is clearly uh, counterposed, if you will, uh, by the 20 stories that follow. And furthermore, highlights the incredible talent and and intelligence uh, and the learning and the, everything that these people did in order to become uh, ultimately to become successful and what were the kinds of programs that ultimately helped them get there. Uh, so it was, to me, it was a way uh, of, of showing what, what my world is like in contraposition, if you will, or in contrast to what their worlds were like. And uh, I think it uh, honestly made for a much more honest book. You explain the effect of white privilege, and I, I really love the analogy that you use, uh, talking about the uh, effect of road salt 
on a car in Vermont. Now, you live in the Southwest now, so you don't have to worry about road salt, but ex tell, tell that analogy. Well, the, the thing of the matter is, and, and, uh, and having now read uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast, The Origins of Our Discontents, uh, which brought it home uh, just, just brutally, um, uh, but I hadn't at the time that I, I coined that phrase, but it was my sense that we, we live um, uh, knowing that there are inequities, knowing that they uh, manifest themselves in many different ways, with, with race being one of them and a big one of them. Um, but in order to have a civil and a, and a, a civically healthy society, we need to do I came to believe uh, a far better job on basic on the basic security issues that uh, every person needs. And so, to me, uh, I was trying to figure out how to think about the corrosive effect of failing to create uh, um, equity for for all. Uh, and and I came up with with the car analogy because, in fact. As a um, a young adult in Vermont, um, something very close to that happened to me with my secondhand car. <laughs> and explain explain the analogy because we haven't we haven't told it here. Okay, well the analogy is that uh, when you drive with salt on the roads, or at least you know when I was growing up and in, in, in Vermont um, until I I, I departed, uh, you can get uh, salt in the undercarriage of the car, and if you don't take uh, great pains to clean the car, wash it, et cetera, et cetera, it will, it will rust through. Um, and you will, you will see side panels and, and, and door panels below the doors that have on older cars that have just rusted through. Um, and so the analogy was that if we don't fix the equity issues in this country, uh, uh, that like a corro salt corrosion on a car's frame or on a car's surface, uh, the metal will break and society will break at some point. And um, that was that was the point of the analogy. Right. Um, I, th I believe the words you use are that the bumpers will fall off, uh, right. <laughs> both of the car and of society, if the yes. the corrosive privilege is not exposed. Uh, um, yes. You were uh, the first. Uh, first, you were the executive director and then the president of um, the very beginnings of the Community College of Vermont. And in the book, you described CCV as a radical experiment that might fail. Why was it radical? Well, you have to go back to uh, 1977, 72 to um, and, and have been there to to have it maybe really take on three-dimensional meaning, but uh, it was radical because we didn't have any permanent faculty. And to this day, uh, they have very few permanent faculty. It was radical because we were using practitioners in time over the last 50 plus years. It has turned out that practitioners um, of, a, of a subject matter uh, can be very good teachers with the right support. Um, it was radical because it was not academic in the traditional liberal arts sense of the word. Um, it was radical because we didn't have a campus. We were using church basements and high schools during the evening in the beginning. Now they have these beautiful learning centers, but there is still no home campus. Um, and it was radical because we assessed uh, prior learning. So if you came to us as a 35-year-old adult, one of the things we would do with you is help you understand what you already knew uh, that could be applied towards the degree. And we would give you advanced standing for the learning you had done in your life, on your job, uh, wherever, however, in the military, however it had happened. So it was, it was um, considered radical for all of those uh, reasons. Um, and I think what's changed, what, what's, I mean, first of all, I need to be very clear. I cannot in any way claim credit for what the community college has become. Uh, it is, it, it, it's, it's just, uh, yes, uh, the team that I was with and I as the first employee designed and started it and we grew it. But uh, 
we could never have anticipated the technology or all the things that college has, in a sense, built on its foundation and in substantial ways reinvented itself every 10 or 12 years since 1970. Uh, so it has become something uh, that is consistent very much with the values that we that we had and that we intended of putting the learner first and making education useful to the learner um, and respecting the learner's life. But the way they are doing business and the position to which they have come in Vermont higher education, uh, that goes, that credit goes to the people who uh, came after me, after me in both leadership and staff roles, because they have just created a miracle in my mind. And I'm, just incredibly proud to have been able to lay the, the, the most basic parts of the foundation um, 50 years ago. Uh, so, but I don't for a minute, as I said, think that the current situation, it can be tracked back to me logically, but that's about the only way it can be. Were there um, not other, uh, you know, campusless uh, colleges, you know, kind of uh, community colleges at the time? Was this the first? Uh, Virtually none. Uh, it's very interesting you ask that question, David, because in the same two-year period, uh, three or four colleges, Empire State College in New York, which is without a campus, uh, Community College of Vermont, Minnesota Metropolitan State College, which has, in fact, changed dramatically. But there were four or five colleges that all were founded, if you will, uh, within the same 18 to 24 month period. But the, the fact of the matter is that when I got the job um, uh, of being the executive director of the commission in October of 1970, 1970 uh, the first thing I did was go to the Library of Congress and all sorts of other places and research to, to find out models. Uh, and there, there, were, there was nothing there. And so literally what we did, uh, I came back and we I hired four or five people and I said, we're going to have to figure out how to do this ourselves because there aren't any examples. Um, and there may have been one or two and I missed them. But what we did was go out and find uh, 50 or so people in central Vermont and 50 or so people in the Northeast Kingdom, mostly Head Start and early childhood uh, care workers or mothers. Um, and uh, we started and we, we just, uh, we learned as we went. And uh, that was a one-year grant, which then we got two more years from OEO. And then we got uh, two more, three more years from the Fund for Improvement of Post-Secondary Education. But it was very much uh, learn as you go. Uh, make a mistake, don't make it twice. Uh, and we had this extraordinary staff. Um, as I, I knew it could fail. Uh, for a number of reasons, my whole focus was it wasn't going to fail because we didn't do a good job. It could fail politically, uh, both in the legislature or with other institutions, almost all of which wanted to put us out of business and tried to. Uh, but they could get us because we were different, but they weren't going to get us because our learners were walking around saying that place did a bad job. Uh, and they, our learners saved us. There was one time the legislature had taken money away, had zeroed out our budget. Um, and there was a hearing. And I'm going to say something like 500 CCV students from all over the state showed up in the state house to say, don't do it. And the money went back into the budget. So, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty, uh, uh, boy, it was, it was pretty, the existence was very marginal uh, from a political perspective for really the first 10 years, even extend. We had a couple of scares that two or three years after I left, but the staff and the leadership and the Vermont state colleges board of trustees, the chancellors uh, involved um, and the students all rose to the occasion every time. And that's now you've, it's turned into this absolutely remarkable institution um, that is still with, there may be one in Indiana called Ivy Tech that is close. And California has just started a two-year statewide program called Calbright, but literally this year, last year. Um, but there are still 
very few colleges, community colleges like um, CCV. Very few. Hmm. Um, talk about your transition to politics. So you finish as president of CCV. Uh, when did you make that transition to run for office? Well, it was, um, it became clear to me, and this was in two, intuition, I, I, I now know it to be a really important life lesson. But in, I was in my eighth year, and I realized that I had, I had given 95% of what I had to offer to the Community College of Vermont. That, that you know, I could stay for several more years, but it, they, they needed something different, uh, that we had uh, joined the system, we had become accredited, we had a state appropriation, you know, uh, as I once said, we made a lot of snow. Now we needed somebody who could make a snowman uh, and, you know, create create the next level. And I just knew intuitively that uh, I had I had given what I had to give and needed to go on. As I began to think about things, um, uh, and I had some close friends, and one of them had worked for Jim Jeffords um, and lived up in Middlesex, about a half mile from me, and uh, the current lieutenant governor had been very controversial as a Republican. Um, and this fellow said, why don't you run for lieutenant governor? And I mean, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I'd like to pretend it was a more thoughtful process than that. Uh, and it was to some extent, <laughs> but uh, that's where it came from. And I had announced I was leaving in June, uh, in January. And by uh March and April, I was putting a campaign to run in the primary against uh, Gary Buckley. Um, and uh, as we talked about in an earlier show, uh, I can tell you honestly that as I look back on it, uh, I, uh, I probably signed up for the wrong party. But that's looking back on it, because when I signed up, George Aiken was still uh, alive and well. Bob Stafford was uh, the 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 senator, one, one of the senators. Uh, Jim Jeffords was in the House, uh, in the Republican Party. Uh, that I and I was a liberal Republican, and that was at the time very comfortable for me. Uh, what I failed to predict was what was going to happen over the next fifteen years with Ronald Reagan and Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers and. Uh, and uh, having the party come to its current just state of default, in my estimation, as being a responsible political player of any kind. So that that was, you know, that was the uh, just the nature of that decision. Uh, at the time, it felt like a, a fit, and uh, uh, until uh, until nineteen ninety ninety one. It was, you know, and I, I laugh and say that my footnote in political history is that the National Rifle Association considered Bernie Sanders to be the lesser of two evils. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I, I didn't like losing, but um, I'd never, never regret the reason I lost. So no. let's let's talk about that. You are elected in uh, to Congress in 1988. Um, you are running against Bernie Sanders at that time, then the mayor of Burlington. Mm -hmm. And uh, you defeat him, although it's it's a fairly close election. Um, he, I think, surprises people uh, by how well he does. And then in the course of your term in Congress, you fatefully vote for a ban on assault weapons. Um, why did you do that? What in, what motivated well, that vote? Uh, actually, I, I co-sponsored the bill and, and voted on it. I had... Um, a meeting. Uh, I was on the Ed and Labor Committee, and it was a, a, a rump meeting. It was it was an informal gathering, three or four members, Republicans and Democrats, with some high school seniors from Anacostia, which is a, a very poor uh, and and very black district in the District of Columbia. And they were all going to college, and we wanted to know why. And so it was an informal conversation. And at one point, I asked uh, them, uh, what could you have used more of? And this young woman, uh, th I thought they'd say more counseling or more advice or whatever. 
she said, I could have used more courage because every day on the way to school, the gangbangers on the corner would threaten me, tell me they were going to get me and, and show me their guns. And, and I would just slink on by. And uh, if I'd had more courage, I would have gone up and poked them in the chin and said, you get out of my way. I'm going to college. You're not going to stop me. So I would have liked to have more courage. Well, I was, it was just a life-changing event for me. And I, the next morning, was looking at myself in the mirror, uh, shaving, and um, <laughs> said, you know, Smith, you're going to be looking at this face for the rest of your life. Um, and you, you got to like the person you're looking at. And uh, you got to do something about this. This isn't about 22s and 3030s. You know, we have stronger laws protecting animals in terms of how many bullets in a gun and all, what kind of gun you can use. The deer are safer in many states uh, than people on Main Street. Uh, and I just, I went to work that day and uh, got my staff to look at the bills that were coming. And Pete Stark had one uh, from California on semi-autos, which I thought was uh, and there had been a couple of mass, the early mass shootings that year in California um, and in schools. And I signed on. And um, that was that. So that's, that's, I mean, it was, and I've never re regretted it. Um, How soon did you know you were in political trouble after doing well, that? The, the, the fact of the matter is that happened about six months into my term. And what's really interesting about it, I mean, I think there are two factors at play. Uh, I was taking intense heat from people, friends, uh, as well as people I had never met. Uh, but I was still, uh, I'm going to say, in August of the next year, with the election coming in November, I was uh, still ahead. Um, and... Uh, and, and, you know, there were, I mean, I was, there was polling in the, I think it was the Burlington Free Press and around Labor Day, just before Labor Day, I was still ahead. But two things happened. The first uh, thing is that there was no major Democrat in that race. Paul Poirier's uh, uh, example from 88, where he had actually run third, I think, and and I don't know that there weren't other machinations, but I was well, not privy uh, to them. Let me just remind people, in, when you were elected to Congress in 1988, Paul Poirier, who was the Speaker of the Vermont House, right. ran, and it was a three-way race, uh, Bernie Sanders, Poirier, and yourself. Right. Um, and it, you prevailed in that contest. Yes. So two years later, there is no – there's a wonderful uh, woman named Dolores Sandoval, who I was friends with before – during and after the race. So she was a professor at UVM and she ran, but she was not, uh, not a, in that case, a statewide uh, figure of any kind. But so there was, there was no serious democratic uh, from the point of view of, she was a very serious person. Don't get me wrong, but from the point of view of somebody who had uh, the, the chops to run statewide uh, as a Paul Poirier would have, uh, there was no one in the race. So that, that created a very different chemistry. And then uh, the fact that uh, in, after Labor Day, the, uh, the uh, National Rifle Association uh, weighed in on the race uh, with mailings and advertisements, um, et cetera, et cetera, um, and uh, spent, I, I can't remember how much, but I would say it was fifty or $60,000. might have been more than that. But, and basically they boiled it down to Smith's a liar. Um, and I was only able to say, I'm not a liar. I changed my mind. Uh, you know, and then if you change your mind, you change your mind. But anyway, that, um, those two things together uh, dramatically changed the dynamic of the race uh, really in the last six weeks of the election. Um, and I went from being, you know, I'm going to say I was eight or 10 points ahead to being uh, 17 points behind on election day. I mean, it was, it was a little bit like getting, uh, you know, thrown down a rabbit hole. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, it was, 
Did the NRA actively uh, campaign or contribute to Bernie Sanders' campaign? I, it, you'd have to go back and check the records. I believe they did not uh, contribute to his campaign. Um, I know there was, because uh, I had people I know who were in the meetings, there were conversations, but I think it was their choice. Uh, they And I talked to a fellow who was the head of NRA in Vermont. He said, I said, what are you doing? And uh, he's a Republican. And he said, well, we're going to get you and then we're going to get him. It's that simple. And um, I saw him about five years later and I said, uh, well, gee, great job on getting Bernie. You really, you really kicked his butt. And, and I will not say what he said back to me. <laughs> anyway, uh, so, but they were very much a factor in the race and they, they did take out ads uh, against me uh, and saying that uh, it, they didn't put it quite that he was the lesser of two evils, but that they, they wanted, if you didn't like my position on guns, uh, Bernie was the guy to vote for. And uh, more than that, I just don't know. And it was, you know, 30 years ago. So, um, um, and I'm well over it. So, um, but that was the general dynamic. Right. When people look at how Vermont went from a Republican congressman to a socialist independent congressman, how was Bernie Sanders viewed at that time? Explain, how do you explain to people, besides the whole experience with the NRA and guns, um, why Vermont was drawn to support Bernie Sanders in 1988? I'm not sure I'm the right person to ask that question to, but I think um, what what radiates uh, about Bernie to this day is his authenticity. Um, and I think uh, people saw him as a truth teller. Um, they saw him as having the courage of his convictions um, and as a, a, new, a new face at a time when we were just coming out of eight years with uh, Ronald Reagan and uh, into the second half of uh, George H.W. Bush's presidency. Um, and I think, I frankly think in the context, I, I can't divorce it from not having a, ma a major Democrat in the race, in my mind, or the NRA, uh, because I was, I was still prevailing uh, uh, as we approached Labor Day. So I, I, I cannot take those things out. But I think when uh, it hit the fan, uh, those are the characteristics, and they have proven out over the years to be characteristics that um, Vermonters uh, support. Uh, I'd like to think that, frankly, some of those same characteristics would have, have applied to me. But to the extent they would have or could have or should have, they didn't. <laughs> they didn't in that election, and that's life. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's the nature of the game in politics. What's your view of Bernie Sanders' impact on politics today? He's been there in Washington 30 years. You essentially launched his 30-year national <laughs> political career. I, I um, you know, it's interesting as I look back, uh, and I use my career in education as, an as a counterexample. Uh, I couldn't see it in 1991, uh, but uh, going back into education and the next 30 years uh, for me uh, have been uh, just extraordinarily exciting. Uh, and all the things we were talking about with the Community College of Vermont, the values that we, we had and that we implemented uh, came true uh, in the sense that they became much more mainstream uh, and accepted, even if the nature of colleges and universities didn't change, hasn't changed that much. There are a whole, there are now multiple dozens and maybe a couple of hundred very innovative public and private institutions in the United States doing business very differently uh, than uh, they were uh, uh, in, 19, in 1972 or 1992. So in a sense, uh, 
I've, you know, I've, I've really been in the right place, uh, starting another college at Cal State Monterey Bay, working at UNESCO as head of the education division, coming back to work for Kaplan and now University of Maryland global campus, uh, 60,000 students on four or five continents. Uh, you know, uh, it, it's really been where I think I've been doing what I was meant to do. I just leave it at that. I frankly think Bernie's been doing what he was meant to do. I think he's a, he's a natural at it. I think he's had a major impact um, on uh, the party and the country. Um, I think, uh, and, I, and I think in many ways, uh, what we've seen during the pandemic, and it's still obviously gonna shake out, God knows how, I hope positively, um, but what we've we've seen is that uh, that the needs of the society, the the multiple insecurities that millions of people feel—health, housing, hunger, education, income—those uh, th- things are uh, th- they are front and center uh, in terms of what I see as a mainstream societal agenda. Um, and in that way, in a sense, the game has come to Bernie. Whether his specific solutions are the right ones or not is an entirely different issue. But the notion that the top 1% of people in this country uh, would be worth more than the entire middle 60%, uh, and that is something which has only happened since 1980. And it took us 30 years to, to really see it, or the outsourcing of government through contracts to the private sector, uh, th- th- which has weakened government tremendously. And that was, frankly, one of Newt Gingrich's agenda items. He, he told me bluntly he, they wanted to take the party over, not to govern, but to control it. Because if you control it, less gets done. And that's good for his people. Um, so, you know, to me, uh, as much as I was not happy with the outcome of that election, and I really do believe that I did a very good job as congressman on multiple fronts, um, but uh, the last 30 years, when you look at Bernie's been in a place he was meant to be, even if it drives some people crazy, and frankly, I think I was uh, allowed, shall we say, to return to what was really my great passion, which is creating educational opportunities for people who previously have lacked access to those educational opportunities, whatever that means and however you do it. And that's what I've been about both nationally and and for several years at UNESCO globally. Um, uh, and then back in the country, that's what I've been about. And it it's just been a phenomenal 30 years. It strikes me that the issues that you have championed as an educator, and that is education for people who were not born on third base, as they say, but who have had to cross an opportunity canyon, um, that those are, in fact, what Bernie challenges, uh, champions, rather. Um, And I wonder if if you see it that way, that he is sort of the champion of many of your issues, and also if you've had any dealings with him as he's gone on to be uh, you know, congressman and then senator, uh, since it would seem your paths would continue to intersect uh, over these issues. Well, you know, I think if I'd stayed in Vermont, that might have been more, more the case. But I was, you know, I was in D.C. for three or four years as dean of the Graduate School of Education at George Washington University. Then I was in Monterey, California for the better part of 11 years starting that college. Then I was in Paris for several years uh, and then came back and was working in in Florida and then Phoenix and now Santa Fe. And I commute when they want me to back to to, uh, Maryland for the University of Maryland Global Campus. So, and I frankly haven't spent a lot of time in Washington, in the Congress or around the Congress uh, I was asked to testify a couple of times and I did, but I just, uh, I didn't want, when I got out of there, the one thing I resolved quite quickly is I wasn't going to get a lobbying job and hang around the Congress. A lot of people do that and they make a ton of money. Uh, but that wasn't 
why well, I didn't go to Washington to be in Washington and hang around the Congress. I went to be a congressman. And when that was no longer the case, I just turned the page and said, uh, and my metaphor for that, since you like some of my metaphors, you know, if you if you bat four, you get four hits in seven at bats in baseball, you go to the Hall of Fame. That's a 560 <laughs> batting average. Yes, that's but a good you, average. But if you're four for seven in politics, which is what I was at that point, um, it's time to find something else to do because you like it more than it likes you. And it was just very clear to me, uh, humanly, personally, and professionally, I wanted to go back into education, and I did. Um, but I think I think your point uh, is is well taken. I'm not sure I would agree with the, the the specifics of his solutions to some of these things. I frankly, uh, I pay more attention right now uh, to, frankly, Peter Welch is a person I listen to very carefully on issues. Um, I served in the Vermont Senate with him. I, I think the world of him. I know him. Uh, I used to know him better than I do today. Uh, I listen and I, and I really focus on... Uh, the things that that President Biden is saying that are important um, uh, in the especially in this Build Back Better bill in the Voting Rights Act, um, those kinds of things. And I think at the 10,000 foot level, Bernie and I would probably agree on a number of values assumptions. Uh, but I beyond that, I just I can't I don't know. Yeah. Um, are uh, you uh, do you how do you feel about having been perhaps the the springboard uh, from which he launched himself into national politics. Do you have any measure of satisfaction or uh, sort of a retrospective pride in having had a, a hand in that? Or <laughs> it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> I think it's a little more complicated than that. Uh, he gets credit for being a hell of a survivor and continuing his, his authenticity. Um, you know, the and all of the things that I said before. Uh, but I haven't, uh, I, I just don't, in my own life, uh, as it is rolled out, I don't see it that way. I see it as uh, I uh, was a liberal in a party that was going progressively, no pun intended, more conservative and structurally more conservative. And I think Vermont and Maryland and Massachusetts are still outlier states in that regard. Uh, the Republicans in those places, and uh, I think of Governor Scott, Governor Douglas, et cetera, uh, as being very good at what they do and 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 appropriate. Uh, but that's not what's happening in the Congress, we know, and it's not what's happening uh, in almost every other state in the country. So uh, to me, uh, uh, one of the, the, the humanly the best decision I made, and I didn't make it for any of those reasons, but was to say, your passion is education and people who lack access, go back and um, do something about it. And mm -hmm. that's what I've been doing for 30 years. And it's been, frankly, I, I, I just feel extraordinarily fortunate uh, to have been able to do that. Are you still a Republican? No. When did you leave the party? Oh, I don't even think it was that much of a decision. I. I refer to myself as a when I refer to my congressional service, I am um, I am I was R Vermont in the 101st Congress. And as a member of the former members of Congress, I was R Vermont. And I when we go to visit colleges and, you know, we have lots of interesting former members programs. I go as a former Republican congressman, which is a little confusing to some people because I'm generally uh to the to the left of whoever the Democrat is that I'm traveling with, but the truth the truth of the matter is when I was in the Congress, uh, I voted to the left of something like 55 percent of the Democratic caucus, um, as did Jim Jeffords. I mean, it was just a different time, and I just had the bad luck. Uh, you know, uh, you know. I say I have a saying: if you want to surf, you got to get ahead of the wave. And I've been ahead of the wave in in education. I think pretty much all my life. But in politics, the wave broke right on top of me. <laughs> that's, that's, and that's just the way that, that was. I was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I, I'm proud of what I did, and I'm proud of how I did it. And 
Um, I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm more interested in, in the policies of, you know, we need a country that is civically, socially, economically, um, and personally a fairer country. And when you look at what the tax system, for instance, was in 1980 and what it is today, uh, and what's happened to the middle class, it is, it is a little bit like the boil, you know, the boiled frog. I mean, it, the, the, the frog's damn near cooked right now. And we've got to do something to save, I really think, to have a healthy democracy in another 10 or 15 years with a healthy climate. Uh, Peter, do you think that you'll be the last Republican congressman from Vermont? Uh, um, I think it would depend on who ran. Um, but in the situation that Vermont faces today, I mean, if a guy like Jim Douglas or, or uh, uh, Governor Scott decided they wanted to serve in the Congress and were going to run, and then it would depend on, I mean, they wouldn't be running against Pat Leahy or Bernie Sanders or Peter Welch. They'd be running for an open seat. Then it comes down to who wins the primary and, uh, and who the general election is about. But those are, that's picking scenarios. Uh, writ large, uh, unless something just remarkable changes, uh, I, think, uh, I think it would be uh, extremely difficult in the, with the current dynamics nationally, uh, very, very difficult for a Republican to, to win a general election. Hmm. What's your assessment of President Trump's time? Uh, well, go back to our earlier metaphors, like salt, salt on the salt on a car. Uh, I think uh, he has normalized behavior that uh, and political speech and thought that was literally unimaginable thirty years ago, forty years ago. I think even fifteen years ago. Um, I, I have my own view of it, and it's just my view is that the Tea Party came about as a result of Newt Gingrich and the Koch brothers and everything that happened from 96 to 2006, they were making promises they couldn't keep. And so people got angry and along came the Tea Party. And the Tea Party was fighting the Republican establishment, although it was still, we were using, they were using common language. Um, then along came Donald Trump and nobody thought he could win. And he took all of that alienation and turned it into a, uh, a majority Republican attitude. Um, and so to me, where we ended up in 2016 to 2020, as unimaginable as it might have been 30 years ago or 20 years ago, there is a through line that runs back to the Koch brothers and Newt Gingrich. Jane Mayer has written about it um, um, beautifully in terms of the collection of, you know, putting money together. Um, and Norm Ornstein and, has written a couple of great books with a guy from Brookings Institution on what was going on in the mid 80s as the as the foundation was getting laid for Gingrich's takeover of the uh, of the Republican Party. He won by one vote uh, in that to get that minority whip. I can assure you it wasn't mine, uh, but uh, he only won by one vote. But that was a turning point in political history, I think, if you go back and really look at it. So to me, uh, I think we're still learning just how disastrous um, Trump's impact, uh, his policies, uh, as erratic as they were, or less, in my mind, uh, powerfully destructive than his behavior <clears throat> and what he was doing, doing to the institutions of, uh, of, of, of government and uh, in collaboration with Republicans in the Congress and then through their joint manipulation, uh, putting people on the Supreme Court who historically would never have gotten there by the way they did in, in two cases. So it, it's just hard to sum it all up. Uh, uh, 
but I, I don't think uh, we're out of it yet. And I think the next uh, uh, you know, 22 and 24, and I would say 26 and 28, are going to be critical, critical uh, uh, times for those of us who believe in a constitutional form of government, however imperfect uh, that may be from time to time. How worried are you about the future of American democracy and whether it will survive the forces of authoritarianism that we see surging in various arenas? Well, uh, I'm just one person, you know, sitting, uh, looking out at, uh, at the mountains in New, in New Mexico, but I, I am very worried. Um, and uh, I can, you know, the people out here that I have come to know uh, <clears throat> are uh, very worried. And uh, it's because so much of what we took for being the right way to behave uh, when you held office uh, up until the year 2000, let's say, um, that how much of that depended on behavior. It assumed uh, a collected and shared um, reverence, if you will, for what the guardrails were. Um, that, that, that behavior is gone. And it is gone uh, in the in the Senate, when you look at the, the reverse logic on both of the last two Supreme Court justices, uh, it is gone on the, even on the debt ceiling when you uh, see what they did, uh, cutting taxes for millionaires and billionaires uh, in, 19, in 2017, whatever it was, and now being unwilling to raise the debt ceiling to pay for the loss of uh, revenue that uh, to cover the loss of revenue that they engendered. I mean, there's there's just a level of, uh, I don't even think it can call, it's, cal it's not irresponsibility, it's calculated uh, uh, political activity aimed at uh, getting control of the government that is, uh, in my mind, not dependent on free and fair elections, but is dependent on uh, making sure that those elections and the people who manage them and the districts that are created are tilted uh, towards uh, uh, the Republican Party. And I think that's what they're about. Uh, and I think it is, uh, it, it's time for us to suspend our disbelief and understand, and I, I don't agree with Lynn Cheney on anything, but I admire her enormously for what she's doing. Uh, because she has suspended her disbelief and said, this is more important than anything else, and we're going to get to the bottom of it in terms of the January 6th investigation. Uh, and I think we've all just got to do that. You have the unique vantage point uh, of really having seen the Reagan revolution and the, the Gingrich uh, you know, revolution in its infancy. What do you think it is that they appeal to that has proved to be so politically potent? Well, it, it, it is hard for me in retrospect to, uh, I, think, I think they're very different figures because in Reagan's case, although I was supporting H.W. Bush and Howard Baker, not Ronald Reagan, uh, we didn't know what we were walking into. So it was all academic kind of, you know, we knew he was a conservative, uh, but we had no idea uh, what his overall impact over eight years would be. Um, and so to me, uh, that's, that's the beginning of the, uh, you know, the boiling frog analogy. Um, and I don't think, uh, frankly, we really got to the point where uh, and so he was good looking. He was articulate. He was famous actor. Um, I'm not sure, you know. We we had the, the Democrats had the strongest possible candidates, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it's it's the cumulative effect uh, in my mind that uh, uh, and you know you do have the the stunning reality as you look back on it that 
George W. Bush lost the popular vote and through uh, a series of events which could have just as well not happened, um, instead of going back for the recount in Florida, the Supreme Court uh, said no, um, Bush won. And in what is one of the most selfless acts in my lifetime in political history, Al Gore as vice president uh, oversaw that electoral vote count and did not object to it. Um, so, you know, you if you look at things that way, uh, then you come through Bush to Obama and then through Obama to Trump and Hillary Clinton got more votes than Donald Trump did. So you, know, you, you can actually say that other than 2004, a Republican has not at running for president has not gotten the most votes, but they have been elected twice uh, with less than uh, with a lower vote total because of the Electoral College and whatever uh, political realities lay behind that or because of what the Supreme Court did in 2000. So I think the narrative that you're describing uh, is a little fraught in that you could look at it another way and say, Democrats have frankly been consistently strong as the other party uh, since uh, 1992. They, they lost one election and it was uh, numerically by vote. And it was uh, when George W. Bush was running for re-election in 2004. And we all know what those situa that situation was like. Um, but I think under it all is an alienation from government and the sense, the rise of really strong, rabid right-wing radio and television that is trying to convince people, and has been for the last 25, 20, 25 years, that it doesn't matter what party you're in, there's a bunch of no-goods out there, and they're just getting rich and doing a, doing a bad job, and that leads you to want less government. Uh, to me, that that's a narrative, but I don't think it's in presidential elections. That narrative has not gotten a majority of the votes, um, but one time in the last uh, almost 30 years. Okay. Well, Peter Smith, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Well, thank you. It's, it's a little uh, disturbing to go back over all this stuff, but uh, thank you for asking me and thank you for understanding about my book and all the rest of it. And uh, just take, take good care of Vermont. Okay. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.